You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. On a lonely hill high up on the Isle of Man sit a ragged stone house and farm. At night, the wind blew through cracks and made strange noises. And as with all homes, other creatures sought to enter and find shelter. And then, late one night, Scratches and whispers began to come from behind the walls and in the rafters. I am the eighth wonder of the world. I am an earthbound spirit. I am a freak. I have hands and I have feet. And if you saw me, you'd think you'd be petrified. You'd be mummified. You'd turn into stone or color of salt. My name is Jeff. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. For 67 episodes, Dr. Karen Stolzno, Ben Radford, and I have been examining stories about monsters and using them to discuss the facts behind the legends. We've used monsters as a springboard to talk about science and critical thinking. We've interviewed lots of fascinating working scientists and laymen. We've talked to skeptics and believers and neutral parties. We've boldly podcasted where few have podcasted before. This episode's topic is very special to me. The night I met Ben and Karen at DragonCon some years ago, we all talked monsters. And one of the ones we brought up was this unusual and lesser-known creature called Jeff, the talking mongoose. It's taken us this long to get to Jeff, and I'm delighted at the interview we have for you. The guest is Christopher Joseph, and he wrote a great article for 40 and Times about Jeff and is currently working on a book on the topic as well. I really hope you enjoy this interview. 
but I must also warn you that this will be the last episode of Monster Talk. For a while. I'm taking a break for a variety of personal reasons, but we'll be back in July with new episodes. I'm not going to drop off the earth, but I do need some time away. Monster Talk, when done properly, takes a lot of time, and I don't want to do this show poorly. You deserve better, and I demand better of myself. So please hang in there. Please stay with us on our Monster Talk Facebook group, and this summer, Monster Talk will be back with more monsters and science. Monster Talk. Today on Monster Talk, we're talking to Christopher Joseph. And Christopher is the author of one of the most interesting uh, write-ups on Jeff the Talking Mongoose that I've come across. Um, Jeff is a monster or a creature or a phenomena. We'll get into that. That has been of interest to me since I was probably about 11 or 12 years old. And I know um, a long-time interest to Karen as well. Yeah, I think it's one of the, the few articles as well. Yeah, well, they're right. There's not a lot written about it, although uh, we'll get into that as well. So let's just say welcome to Christopher. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So I, there are a lot of ways we can start talking about this topic. Um, the way I usually see the story presented, it starts when uh, a man named Harry Price gets involved in the case. Um, but let's just start at the very beginning if we can, maybe just take yeah. it sort of historically. What is Jeff the Talking Mongoose, and how does his story begin chronologically? Well, he, he first started to appear um, in the autumn of 1931 uh, in a little village called Dolby in quite a rural part of the Isle of Man. Um, and pretty quickly, his, his fame started to spread in the local area and, and various neighboring villages and the, the town of Peel. Uh, people were getting quite intrigued by what was going on. Um, so it was quite rapidly in the Isle of Man press. Then it crossed over to the mainland, uh, to the north of England newspapers, which is about the time Harry Price heard about it in sort of spring of 1932. What was Jeff, and uh, according to the stories, and what were some of his antics? Okay, so the Irving family lived on a very remote farm. There was James Irving, uh, his wife Margaret, and their teenage daughter, Vori. And in around September 1931, they claimed, and we have to stress that they, a lot of the evidence we have is, is, is really just what the Irving family presented to us with, um, although there is some other evidence. They claimed that a little... A uh, weasel or rat-like animal had had appeared to them um, firstly outside in in the farm yard and then inside the farmhouse. Now their farm was built out of stone, but it was very cold. It's up on a mountain, um, and they had lined the walls with some kind of wooden matchboarding, um, and there was a gap between the stone and the the wooden matchboarding of about four inches. And they were claiming that this little animal had kind of got, kind of like squirrels get into attics, that they'd got into um, the inside of the house. And and they said they very quickly, they heard it sort of repeating noises back to them, and then it was making animal noises, and very quickly they claimed it it learned to talk. Um, And the whole thing started from there, that it it sort of took on this very intelligent... um, ability to learn rather like children learn to speak but in a much more compressed you know within weeks um and then it started to roam around spying on local villagers reporting back gossip this is where um it begins to get weird because apparently it would go back to the irving family 
and say, oh, uh, Mrs. So-and-so is knitting a new hat or um, the farmer down there has um, lost his sheep. And these were apparently very local, kind of humdrum, rather boring events. But that these people said, well, we didn't tell you. How did you know that? Um, and that's some of the kind of supporting evidence. that He used to go down to the town of Peel and spy on the bus drivers. There was a big bus depot, and he used to go and apparently steal their sandwiches and, and um, report back to the Irvings. And say, he, he described one of the bus driver's houses, and the bus driver said, well, I live alone. How did you, you know, you haven't been in my house. No one's been in my house. I'm on the first story. How, how did you get to know this? And, and this farmer, Irving, insisted... Well, it's this little talking animal. It's it's neat to me because, like, uh, as a grown up, as a grown up, I, I read this story and go, "Well, that's um, that's extremely unlikely, right?" <laughs> but as a as a child, I, when when I would hear the story, and I we had uh, a frequent problem with squirrels in my attic, mm. and um, and then the write ups talking about how that. Um, Jeff would scamper around behind the boards, but he, sure. he he was an animal, but he had human hands and could talk. It was uh, it was very creepy to me, and um, uh, he, he was he, bilingual too. He could yeah. uh, couldn't he sing in Welsh and Manx and yeah. uh, Spanish and Yiddish. That's right. Yeah, all sorts of little smatterings of different languages that he apparently picked up. Although it must be pointed out that James Irving was um, quite a cosmopolitan character and he travelled around. He wasn't um, an Isle of Man person. He used to work in Liverpool and he was a commercial traveller and he he travelled around here and there. So there is certainly aspects of him, his his mind and his interests that kind of dovetail with Jeff's. Um, The same with the daughter who was very interested in mechanical engineering and aeroplanes and tractors and Jeff would go down to the airport and he'd report back and say, I've just seen this this particular biplane fly in and um, there are are certain similarities. He, He liked the food he ate wasn't the kind of food you'd expect a weasel or a mongoose to eat. It was more like the kind of food that you might think a teenage girl might like, like cream cakes and bacon. Um, but that said, it isn't. It can't just be explained as a hoax, although that is what, um, to anticipate maybe what we're going to get onto later, that is what some of the local people felt was going on. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I Maybe we should start here and then um, go to the next stage where – this man named Harry Price uh, gets a hold of the case and decides to investigate. But this is not a small thing. I mean, Harry has quite a, uh, um, a public reputation. So can you tell us a little bit about Harry Price and uh, what his character was like before he got involved with this particular investigation? How, how would people know his name? Is he an everyday name or, or what, what, what kind of a reputation or uh, public figure was he? Yeah, certainly at the time he was um, very, very widely known. Um, he was a psychic investigator who had um, had a private income, so he was able to indulge his interests in, in, in um, as he saw it, exposing fraudulent spiritualist mediums. And, and if he found that the odd one or two that he felt was genuine, um, he would investigate those. And because of his his private income, he managed to build up a lot of um, what he said was kind of scientific equipment with which you could measure the veracity or otherwise of of um spiritualist mediums um he investigated the the schneider brothers rudely and willie and um he first came to to public attention when he exposed um a fraudulent have you come across these um 
spirit photos. It was a big thing after the First World War, I think. I mean, it may have been at its inception Victorian times, but this was a big thing after the First World War. People were trying to contact their dead relatives. Um, and there was a circle of, of spiritualists up in Crewe in the north of England. Um, and this chap, Hope, claimed to be able to photograph people. And when he developed the photos there, their dead relatives would appear on on the on the image um and price this was a you know quite a that was quite a big thing at the time that he managed to expose this there was some kind of sleight of hand um so he he had a reputation of being not a gullible man um because he said you know if someone's a fraud i will expose them um but if i think they're genuine i will try and investigate um and and eliminate all the possibilities of of hoax or fraud and I, i think with the um the Rudy Schneider investigations, he was fairly convinced, also with people like Stella C, um, other mediums. He so, was also um, very famous for investigating Borley Rectory, too. I think that was one of his biggest... Of course, yes, yes. That's, that was the... Um, I think there's a, at least two books he wrote about Borley, um, although there have been some allegations that he slightly, how shall we put it, hyped up the uh, the goings-on there. Um yeah. I don't know if you yeah, want to go into that or not, but he, he wasn't without his critics, and he was certainly um, very very adept at generating publicity for himself. Yeah, exactly. I didn't know how to put that exactly, but yeah, he, he is a... Uh, uh, so, like, in America, we'd say he was a grandstander. Yeah, you know, you know, absolutely. He, uh, he, he really liked PR. And from what I understand, uh, during... Like, he did an investigation of this. He wrote a book called... The Haunting of Cash and Gap, is that right? And, That's and, it. And then he also um, did at least one radio piece uh, dedicated to this on the BBC Radio. I haven't been able to track that down, so I don't know if there's a recording of that or not. A lot of this stuff is quite hard to track down. The book that you mentioned, The Haunting of Cash and Gap, is um, yeah, it's quite hard to find. I mean, I've, I don't own a copy. I've seen copies. Um, it was quite a small print run, and, and they didn't reprint it. Um, and I think this is partly why... The story of Jeff hasn't been as widely publicised as, as maybe it could or should be. Is that the, the actual sort of the primary resources, if you like, are rather hard to come by? So that yeah, the um, the broadcast he did uh, doesn't appear to have been archived by the BBC, which is strange because it was um, the talking mongoose stuff. Once Price got hold of it, it was big, big news, and and it was in not only the UK press but internationally. Um, uh, there was reports going over to the U.S. and there were claims of rival talking animals. Um, I think it was treated as there's not a lot much else going on and it's the depression, you know, things are a bit gloomy. Let's try and lighten the mood uh, with, with some crazy talking animal stories. And, and um, but, but the actual, what I've, I've read of Price's work, I mean, aside from that, he also wrote about that investigation in, in other books. And he usually took it very, I mean, I don't. He did not dismiss it as a hoax completely in anything that I've read. He he said there were some suspicious circumstances involved, um, but there were also some very peculiar things going on as well. So it it seems like the case has elements of. Um, uh, so if a, if a talking animal is supernatural, maybe that. But also, um, Jeff seemed to throw things uh, ostensibly from behind the wall. So maybe, but yeah, it seems almost like a poltergeist case. Except, um, and I actually read an account last night from a book that was written in 1950. I forget which uh, author it was, but he said um, he said it's not just like a poltergeist case. It's also very similar to a hobgoblin 
yeah. in that in that um, you've got uh, almost like a spirit. Even Jeff says himself that he said a lot of things, but one of the things he says he's an earthbound spirit, um, and he seems to have like say quasi supernatural powers. He doesn't act like a ferret or a mongoose. Uh, he he kills animals and leaves them at the uh, Irving's house, but he chokes them to death, which is a strange thing. Yeah. Um, it's really, it's just, a, it's, a, it's a hodgepodge of, of uh, very implausible but hard to research claims. And then he, of course. Wasn't he? He was very rude as well. He used to insult people and spit on them. And Yeah, he was very foul mouthed. He was very obnoxious and quite touchy and temperamental. Um, but I think that does dovetail a little bit with some of the other poltergeist cases. Um, where I mean the Bell Witch, it's sometimes compared with the Bell Witch case, and yeah, you get some kind of entity from wherever it's coming from, whether it's inside these these people's minds or if it comes from elsewhere. It can be quite um, argumentative, threatening. Jeff never actually hurt anyone, which I think is unlike the the Bell Witch case, if if that if I understand that correctly. But he certainly threatened to kill people's poultry, shoot them, um, and he was very touchy about being photographed or being seen, although a couple of people did, did say they'd seen him, uh, aside from the Irvings, that is. I I think there are a lot of close... Sorry, I was just going to say the poltergeist uh, links. There are quite a lot, the banging, the knocking, the throwing things. And uh, I think he, he did bite Mrs. Irving once, didn't he? And then told her to put some ointment on the, the wound. Yeah, well, that was her fault because she was yeah. stroking his back and then she um, got a bit carried away and, and put her finger in, in his mouth, which she obviously then bit. Um, and she complained about that. And as, as you say, his, his response was, well, go and put some ointment on it then. It's, it's your fault. I've... Um, a bit of self-promotion here. I'm currently writing a book about Jeff, and the chapter I've been looking at this last couple of weeks is, was Jeff a familiar, a witch's familiar? Because something that Harry Price remarked, that if this had happened 300 years ago, that the whole family would have been hanged as witches. Um, and I initially thought this was kind of a throwaway remark, but having mm -hmm. looked at some of the 17th century early modern um, accounts of, of particularly English witches' familiars, there are quite a few polecats, ferrets, small animals. There was one woman who was hanged as a witch in, in, in London who had a squirrel. Um, and there are some points of comparison, but it kind of begs the question of what is a familiar. And, you know, a lot of these women were just being tortured and they'd say anything. So it doesn't really take us that much farther. Um, although it is quite striking that it's kind of an English tradition and... The Isle of Man, as you probably know, has loads and loads of old legends, both kind of Celtic and, and from Norse, the Viking influence coming in there. And yeah, there are the stories of these helpful goblins and bogarts who will stay in your house and, and they'll help you out if you feed them, which is kind of what happened with Jeff. He, he used to get given food and he would catch these rabbits and he would... Um, uh, find lost sheep because they were mainly sheep and, and goat farmers um the irvings so in that sense he he does kind of parallel the these uh, old traditional stories of, of helpful brownies i think they're called in scotland sorry i'm running away i get very carried away when i talk about jeff i get so excited but no no yeah, it's okay <laughs> interrupt me as you will so 
let's let's go back to uh, Harry Price taking the story to the media. So okay. you said that the uh, the media ran the stories, but maybe there was nothing else going on. This was lighthearted fair. I mean, um, were people? I assume this was being. This is my bad memory, but it's being released in installments as the investigations go along. Is that how this happens, or or how how is how how long does the story go on in the media? Is it just a series of updates, or does Harry just release one big investigation? Um, well, what happened is, and it's interesting that the Irvings themselves didn't contact him. It was a friend of theirs um, on the Isle of Man who wrote to Price and said, look, they're really perplexed about this this thing, this entity, and you're the top man in this field, and could you investigate? Uh, now, initially, he didn't go up there himself. He, he sent one of his investigators, um, an ex-naval man called Dennis, who he thought was a very, very shrewd and reliable person and not easily hoodwinked and so forth. Um, and Dennis did have two or three experiences wh- where he heard the voice apparently of Jeff and he was convinced it wasn't, um, it wasn't the daughter, which was the obvious supposition. Price did go up there with, um, the editor of the listener magazine, RS Lambert, who was the co-author of the, um, the, the Cashin's Gap book. Uh, nothing really happened to him up there. And I think that's partly why he shifted his position from thinking, Oh, there might be something here. This is extraordinary to, I think this is a hoax. Um, so he had his article, as you say, he had the radio article, and then the book came out uh, four years later in 1936. But by that stage, it was kind of diminishing a little bit. The, uh, Jeff's visits became less frequent. Um, he was still around, but he'd kind of go away and come back um, and then say, oh, i just been around the island. He seems to have, or shall we say, as the daughter grew up she was 12 when this first happened so she was going through puberty so again you have a poltergeist possible connection as she grew up jeff's frequency of visiting seemed to get less and less uh, until by the time she was an adult he wasn't really around i think one of the uh, accusations was made against boyery wasn't it that she was a ventriloquist that's right and there's um I managed to track down an, an interview with uh, the wonderful old lady who had been to school with Vori, uh, and they were friends. And she said, yes, it was a hoax, and it was the mother and the daughter. And, and the motive she gave was that they wanted to move back to, to Liverpool, which is where they'd originally come from. I mean, Vori was born there, but the mother and the father had come from Liverpool. And, you know, why are we, we're really poor, we're cold... I smell of goats. That was Vori's uh, nickname, Goaty, because she was had to, you know, why can't we go back and live a normal life where I could have friends? That was the the, the suggestion by some of the neighbours. Um, and certainly, this this lady who had been her friend said she could throw her voice. Um, although I've I've also learned from professional ventriloquists that this idea of throwing a voice is a myth anyway. That it's it's just a a misdirection by by stage ventriloquists. So one doesn't really know what to believe um apparently i'm not i can't do this but apparently if you you can't make your voice emanate from another part of a room you can merely misdirect your audience to make them think that is happening um but maybe that's what Vori was doing yeah it just seems like she was teased a lot in school for the claims and uh yeah, but but uh, you know, and I, I, it's interesting to me because for every for every easy explanation, there's a complication. So, um, 
it, you know, people said when Voyeur wasn't, you know, Voyeur wasn't around, sometimes they would still hear Jeff. You know, it always makes you think, well, how do they know? And, and could the mother also do this trick, you know? Or, you know, would any phenomena that happened be attributed to Jeff, whether it was him or, you know, or, you know what I mean? Like, so if something falls over, nobody's near it, does that become Jeff versus the wind, you know? Yeah, I, I think there was a real heightened sense of expectation. And apparently, scores of people used to go up to the farmhouse. Um, you know, there was no TV in those days. There was little entertainment. And this was a big thing in the neighborhood. And they'd all go up there um, and try and listen out and maybe they could hear him or see him uh and it got to the stage where irving had to put an advert in the local paper to say no visitors by a point unless by appointment because he was getting tired of all these um unwanted visitors coming up and invading their house now, if i remember correctly he was a, a former piano repairman or repair piano salesperson that's correct apparently what happened he had quite a successful business before world war one and then it kind of all collapsed. Um, so he, he just invested his last couple of hundred pounds in starting this new career. Uh, and the connection with the Isle of Man is that his wife, his wife's family came from, from Man. Um, it seems a bit of a jump, but... Um, it does. And it's, uh, it didn't work out well either. I think he, he had you know, plans to be a successful businessman. And initially they employed people. But as the depression started to bite and money got tighter and tighter, they ended up doing all the work themselves on the farm. So what about uh, what actually what Jeff was? Uh, could it have been possible that he it was a mongoose? Were there mongooses on the Isle of Man at the time? Well, I was surprised to find out that there were. Um, certainly there were 20 years before this took place. Um there was apparently a neighboring farmer, it's about eight or ten miles away from their farm, who had imported, uh, I think, six or eight mongooses or mongai. Um, <laughs> to... I wasn't sure about the plural there. No, no, mongoose something. Mongoose, yeah. <laughs> um, there's loads of rabbits and hares on the Isle of Man, and there are no foxes. So the foxes aren't present to control the rabbit population. So if you're a farmer, you might think, oh, I've got to do something about this. Um, so this is apparently what this other chap did, imported mongooses um, from India, presumably. I mean, this is the days of the British Empire, so there was much more traffic and trade with, with places like East Africa and India. Um I have heard of a couple of reports that there are still mongooses in this area. It seems extraordinary because it it's not really the kind of climate you'd imagine mongooses would thrive in, but there you go. Um, Jenny Randalls, you know about Jenny Randalls, the UFO investigator? She she was um, in the on the island about, I think it was about 10 years ago, and she saw this kind of yellowy beast going across the road, and she thought, oh, that's funny, what's that? It's not a fo- I know it's not a fox because I know what a fox looks like, and anyway, there aren't any foxes on the island. Um, and I met a chap, a local chap, who um, who was quite a, a, a nature person. He, he knew quite a lot about animals, and he said, yeah, I saw this thing. It was kind of like a polecat, but it was the wrong colour, and I think it was a mongoose. So, so there were mongooses on the island, but they weren't talking ones as far as we know. They were just rabbit-catching wild mongooses. Um, he also wasn't the right size. I mean, the Irvings described him, and one or two other people said they saw him, and they described him as a little six-inch animal with a six-inch tail, kind of more like a squirrel, in my opinion, or a weasel. But mongooses aren't that small. 
um, they're, they're much bigger and they have a different tail. Years later, a farmer says he killed an animal that he thinks might have been Jeff. Yes, he was the farmer that took over the farm after Irving died, yeah. Um, did he actually produce a body or did he just say that? In your, like, is it possible he just said that so people would stop bothering him? No, there, there is a photo. There's a photo of him holding up this carcass. It was in one of the local papers. Um, oh, wow. Okay. But it's kind of not really Jeff-like. It's, it's a big thing. Uh, it looks to me like a big big old polecat or I would say badger, but again, they don't have badgers on the Isle of Man. It's a very odd kind of place. Um, it, it, it was too big um, unless Jeff had grown or maybe had grown a lot and changed colour. Um, he said he he kind of heard it prowling around and he saw it and then I think he snared, that's right, he snared it. Um, and then in the end he went out in the morning and shot it, I think. Um, but it, he never talked. It well, no. <laughs> yeah, it didn't beg for its life, and I think Jeff. No, would, you know, no. he had a lot. He was he was proud, but not that proud. <laughs> he would have disappeared or changed his shape or something. He would have pulled some so, stunt. Speaking about the the body of Jeff, uh, mm. there was some physical evidence for for Jeff, wasn't there? That the family had produced and presented to Harry Price. Yes. Now this is where it gets a bit dodgy because. Um, <laughs> Under great pressure, uh, they took some photos of Jeff. Or maybe you were thinking about the the hair, the fur samples. I was thinking about all of that. Yeah. Yeah, the hair, yeah. the fur, the, the, um, the imprints. The imprints. Uh, yeah. yeah. Jeff was very reluctant to be seen, um, and he, he said he only exposed himself to the Irvings just so they'd believe, um, and they saw his shadow sometimes by candlelight. Um, oh, just to add, there was no electric light in this house, um, so you, you have to imagine quite a, a dark and gloomy atmosphere and possibly conducive to seeing little flickering shadows and things. They just had oil lamps. Um, must have been quite grim. But anyway, yeah, he, he did consent to have photos taken. Um, they weren't very convincing. I mean, I, I, I've i seen a few. Um, you probably saw some in the, the 40 and Times article. Yeah, we'll link they, to that they, in the show notes. There are some, I mean, honestly, that's some of the best photos I've seen of this yeah. story. So I appreciate those but being put together. They do tend to vary, I think. What what you see in one picture doesn't necessarily resemble thinking of the one on the, the fence with a tail curled over. Yes. It looks kind of like a squirrel, um, but with kind of chipmunky stripes. Now, that's different to the description they gave of him, which was a little yellow animal with a sort of a bushy tail, black-tipped tail. Um, then the hair samples, well... He was purportedly giving some from his tail and one from his whiskers and one from his back. And when, when Price went up there, he found out they had a, a sheepdog called Mona. And he surreptitiously managed to take some samples of, of Mona's hair. For, and um, sure enough, he had them analyzed. He sent these to um, the Zoological Society of Great Britain. And, and the chap there said, yeah, these are the same. You know, what you've got here... <laughs> dog hairs um so someone's pulling someone's leg whether it's jeff or it's jeff, yeah. the irvings or you know um something's going on and these, um, these finding gave him pause <laughs> yes pause for thoughts indeed yeah. so with the photographs as well uh, i think you said that uh, it's likely that they they might have been some kind of toy that was made in uh, europe at the time or a pelt 
I, I mean, I just wondered whether if if one assumes that it wasn't Jeff catching the rabbits, but uh, the daughter, which she did do with, she went, you know, she was known to do this off with the dog and catch rabbits herself. Could she have maybe used the rabbit skins, the furs, to, to fashion her own um, novelty mongoose that she could then position? I don't know. It's just a just a suggestion. Um, when another psychic investigator by the name of Nandor Fodor, quite an interesting chap. He was a psychoanalyst from Central Europe. He went up there and actually his investigation was more thorough because he stayed at the farm for a week. He did have this suspicion that there were some kind of little toys uh, and he went through all the, the drawers in the house looking for them and couldn't find anything. Although that's not to say that maybe they were concealed outside in the hedge somewhere. Yeah, it looks like there's lots of... Uh slate uh, it would be easy to hide stuff under <laughs> yeah yeah there, there, there was um yeah i was going to ask about nandor fodor i thought that yeah he's a very interesting character as well and then he did his own independent investigation and where was that published um well there's a couple of he initially published them in i think it was society for psychological research journals and bulletins and proceedings but he eventually published them in his own books uh, between two worlds has got a nice chapter on on jeff and um something called the haunted mind which is quite an interesting one because it brings in his his psychologist's hat connected to his paranormal investigation side as well um and he he initially thought oddly enough for a scientific kind of man that this was a talking animal because of the the physical evidence of, of jeff eating and drinking and urinating in the house and spitting on people but he later changed his mind and he thought it was somehow some kind of emanation of james irving's thwarted ambitions and um he's not too clear about how this how this could happen but he had a more of a, like a psychoanalytic reading of it that um oddly enough not the daughter but the um the father and uh, for some reason, that reminds me, weren't there claims as well that uh, Jeff could shapeshift into other characters or other creatures and that he could become invisible? There were certainly accounts of um, things happening where you couldn't see him. There were some people fixing the road, some workmen just down down the road from the farmhouse and they, they'd stopped for lunch and one of these characters was having his sandwiches and he threw a bit of bread away i think it was rotten or stale and then he saw this bread moving along in the fields um with nothing apparently you know, attached to it hello i'm paul giamatti and i'm Stephen asma each week on chinwag we dig into the weird topics you wonder about that you care about the stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the Volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, 
the Big Dinosaur Podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And he threw a stone, he was scared, and then the stone came back. Now, you don't really, there's not much cover up there. I've, I've, I went up there to see the site of the farm, and these are quite open fields. There aren't any trees or bushes, really. It's quite open land, so it's hard to see if something had been hiding. Um, there was some fishermen went round to visit the house, and this is at the time all the people were visiting. Um, and one of these guys said that a, a small white cat had leapt up on his lap and um, the Irving said, well, we haven't got a cat. You know, we've never had a cat and we've got no neighbours. This, this is a house isolated on its own, two miles away from the nearest houses. So, yeah, the supposition was that Jeff was kind of transforming his shape, possibly a little bit like other poltergeist cases, like the, um, the John Wesley case where an entity appeared as a badger um, and this is something that's been taken with some seriousness because as the founder of Methodism, it's Wesley, you know, and he's reported this as a, as a young child. His father wrote down there was all these weird things in, in the parsonage, Epworth Parsonage in Yorkshire. Um, actually, that badger was called Jeff as well, strangely, but I don't know if we want to get into Jeffs throughout the ages. Yeah, were they spelled the same? <laughs> yeah. G-E-F is very unique. Yeah. Yeah, that was his spelling, wasn't it? His uh, phonetic, phonemic spelling. Yeah, he was trying to spell G E O double F F, but he, he couldn't really spell that well. But but hey, you know, you've got to give him credit for being able to spell at all. <laughs> the Irving's house actually it surprised me. It was much bigger than I expected. I don't know why. So was that house already there and they bought it, or was it one that that he built with the money that he spent? No, it was it was built in the middle of the 19th century, um, ah. and it came up for sale. Um, so he bought it and tried to have it made a bit more homely and, um, you know, lined the walls and repaired it a bit. There was a strange character that lived there before, actually, uh, someone called the old miser, the old French miser, and he's kind of an interesting guy himself, but um, he was a, a free thinker and an atheist um, and he he had some weird association with um, the secret service in in Europe, and he was on the run, uh, and he ended up owning lots of property. Uh, and I got really excited about this because um, Jeff, in his long discussions with Irving, said something had happened in this, and Irving said something had happened in this house, and it was that kind of old trope of a haunted house and a murder. Um, and I looked through all the reports, uh, the the newspapers from that area and nothing had happened. Um, and, and this old miser chap, well, he wasn't really a supernatural kind of person. He, he was um, just an eccentric character. And I think even the fact of him being a foreigner was quite unusual for a quite insular place like the West of the Isle of Man. 
So yep. yeah, do we want to talk about the paw prints and the, the weird human hands? I know you've mentioned the human hands. Yeah, let's talk about yeah, that. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, obviously, uh, the, the, again, when I heard the story the first time, it was from a book. I think it's the book's called The House That Bled. I actually, in 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 um, in preparation for this interview, I actually went back onto uh, a used bookseller online and actually tracked down a copy of this and, and bought it. And I, I found out that I would have been about 11 years old when I read it. So that was kind of, kind of fun. Yeah, I was about eight when I heard about it. I think it was from one of those Usborne books, uh, just a, a compilation of supernatural stories. So, yeah. I, But, yeah, the, the, the human hands freaked me out. And, of course, yeah. uh, uh, if you ever see a raccoon, their hands look very much like a human uh, hand. Uh, the front paws do. They're very, they're very articulated. Um, but, um, but just I kept in my head – also, I was a big fan of H.P. Lovecraft, and um, is it Brown Jenkin from the the Witch House? And uh, there's that she has that little familiar that is like a rat with human hands and a human face. And I kind of, in my mind, combine these things together to just have a a very frightening mental picture of what Jeff looked like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm actually convinced, without any proof as yet, that. James of the Witch House was inspired by the story of Jeff because the timing is about right. Um, I think Lovecraft wrote that in about February 32, which was just at the time when the story had broken out from the UK press and was going nationwide. Um, I've had a look through Lovecraft's um, letters, hoping that he would say, I've just read this weird story from England, and there's no mention of it. So I'm kind of hoping, and as I'm writing this book, I'm going to have to look into some of this more, that I could find a New England newspaper from the period that would have a little column about weird goings-on. And um, But it's one of those things you may not be able to prove. It may be just a weird coincidence. It may it, be yeah. just... Believe me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very familiar from, with research like that. I'm still trying to track down. Um, I don't really have proof, but when I was trying to run something to ground about when the first historical reference to a particular paranormal thing was. And um, I, I can track it down to two authors who are probably the source is one of those two. I, I'm inclined to think it's one of the two. But both of them made the same mistake, and the mistake was repeated. And that's where that's, yeah. that's where I'm trying to track down what was the source. Both of them independently came up with the same wrong story. <laughs> so you're hoping to find the original source, right? Uh, but you may not find it. Yeah, right. Exactly. I, I think when I finish writing this up, it's going to be. I think it was this guy, but I really can't prove it wasn't this lady. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So sympathy to you, sir. <laughs> So, so did you want to continue talking about the the prints or yeah so what what happened with the handprints when they they put them in plasticine which That's is right. uh, not the yeah. uh, epoch but the <laughs> not, not the plasticine yeah he um jeff said you leave the plasticine or whatever it was the clay up there and i'll do my stuff um and he later left his imprints of his his teeth marks and his front legs and his back legs the claws um, and it was the case that the, the front paws or claws were much bigger than the back ones. Um, but again, when this was sent down to the Zoological Society chat, Price's contact there, he said there's no animal, there's no known animal that, that has such a disparity between you know, his little back legs and little mouth, his little teeth, and he's massive, you know, it's, it's impossible. Um, I'm not an expert, but I, having looked at those photos, it looks like they might have been made with a little stick or something. 
I sound like an arch skeptic now, and I think with the story of Jeff, I found myself lurching from, no, it's a whole hoax, the whole thing is made up, and thinking, no, no, there is something extraordinary going on here. Um, in that case, it does look like it was a um, made by the daughter. Um, yeah, what, what animal would have human hands if it's six inches long? It's, it doesn't make sense. But he was able to light matches and hold a big metal torch and bang on the walls with his tiny fist and, and make such a loud noise that it echoed around the whole house. Which is it's, creepy. Yeah. <laughs> creepy in the extreme. Especially as he would talk all night and sing uh, and keep them awake. I was going to say, did anybody outside the of the Irving family ever report actually seeing Jeff? There's only uh, seeing him. There's only one or two I've I've heard about. There was when Nando Fodor went up there, and as I say, he was there for a week, so he he interviewed all sorts of local people and tried to build up a much more thorough background to the case. He managed to track down two two young lads, uh, one of whom. They both said they'd heard Jeff in the house, and one of them said he'd seen him running along a field uh, just down down the road. There was also um, a man who stayed in the house overnight, and he said he could hear all this whispering, and um, he looked under the bed. He could hear this thing talking to him. Um, he saw a pair of little eyes staring at him from, from under the bed. Those are the only two accounts of people other than the Irvings having seen him. There's quite a few people who claim to have heard him, but that's something different. And uh, didn't... Sorry, Blake, did you want no, to you go ahead. No, I, I would talk the whole time. You go ahead. <laughs> uh, didn't you mention in your article that uh, Price mentioned somewhere at the start of the book that uh, they'd been, they had a, a talking parrot in the house as well? Um, Another a pet? I, actually, I, I could answer that. But Price was staying down in town ah, uh, during yes. his investigation, and he went up to the um, to the Irving's house, didn't see anything, came back, and he, as he wrote it, he said he was having a hypnagogic dream when he heard the voice of Jeff, and then when he came to full consciousness, he realized it was actually the voice of the parrot in the kitchen across the way, uh, and, and that he had just thought that he was hearing Jeff. So in the house, or I mean, it's, it was in the 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 host who was taking care of them uh, uh, when they were on the island uh, had a parrot, and uh-huh. he or she kept it in the kitchen, and so through an open window he heard the parrot. I see. So I I just read that last night when I was preparing for this, so that's why <laughs> complicate things. And that's actually from Price's account in a different book uh, where he's just kind of doing like little brief overviews of various investigations. Uh, so I, I still haven't been able to track down a copy of The Haunting of Cashing Gap. So. They come up now and yeah. again on um, eBay or ABE Books, but they tend to go for about £100 plus. Um, oh, my gosh. They are, they are rare because, as I say, only 1,500 copies were printed. Um, well, they were rare. This, the, the, one of the versions I read last night, uh, a retelling, mentioned that the book was hard to find in 1950, that it was extremely hard to come by, so it's not going to get better. Uh, <laughs> although if, if, if it's under a private um, imprint, maybe somebody could get a digital copy and, um, and, and maybe make it available. That'd be nice. But a little chip uh, in. <laughs> well, I, you know, the, the trick is it's just tracking down who owns the copyright and whether they're willing to do a digital reprint. That's the question. So, um, 
But that's another issue. I, I, it, investigators who like to, or it, you know, any kind of historian who wants to look at old material, it, it can be very frustrating when there's a limited print run or if there were multiple versions of a book, uh, but only a few copies made. It's just so tricky. But I, I'm very passionate about getting back to that primary source material when I can. It was also quite a problem for James Irving, the farmer, because he he had initially wanted to write his own book. And these were desperately poor people. I don't know if, if we've we've emphasized that or not. He had quite a good living when he was a piano salesman. When he by the time that the whole Jeff stuff was happening in the um early thirties, he was desperately poor and he had um, you know, his wife and his daughter to feed. Um he wanted to write his own book and Price rather naughtily I think said oh you know there's no real market for that I wouldn't bother um, but he was writing his own book um, or co-writing the the arrangement they came to I've seen these letters is that um, they would pay royalties if sales went above a certain amount which they never did so they really were just giving him a few quid here and there, but they were very reluctant to actually pay him because, of course, it it would render the um, his whole diary evidence and letter evidence useless. Um, I know this is a question that that a lot of people have asked: was were the Irvings getting any financial benefit from it? And I haven't been able to find any. Um, they they were offered three guineas once for some of these photographs, some of the ones that we've seen. Um, and, and he refused. This was from a, a newspaper in the north of England. Um, now, three guineas would be quite a lot of money to, to them when they were earning about £1,500 a year, I think it was then, which was you know, for three people. So it's hard to see why they would have refused that. There was also um, a kind of Barnum-style impresario who telegrammed James Irving and said, I'll, I'll give you $50,000, half immediately up front, if you give me exclusive rights over Jeff. To, to tour um, to other states, um, and he turned that down. So I I don't think financial benefit was was the the, the motive. Uh, neither did Harry Price. He he thought there was some kind of hoax, but he thought it was more on a kind of psychological. It's hard to put into words. Um, I think that. He felt that the, the extreme isolation of the Irvings, um, particularly James Irving, having having been maybe quite an important man in Liverpool and um, had quite a, um, a high social status and good standard of living, that he felt this very deeply. Fodor also also believed this, um, that it had caused them to have this kind of weird delusion maybe um, – but this goes against the locals who said, no, no, it was the daughter and the mother and it was a hoax. And they were trying to scare their father into moving away. So, you know, that those two theories are in, in conflict. Yeah, I don't I don't know if um, this counts exactly. But, I mean, there is something called, I, I believe it's pronounced folly adieu, mm. where it's this shared delusion that can happen. We've talked about it on a, on a previous episode of Monster Talk. Um, but there are various conditions where... Um, People imagine things or experience things that an outsider might not be able to experience, but it's completely believed. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, the uh, people who believe that the end times are coming, you know, and, and they have a, mm. a really strong belief that, you know, uh, Jesus or the apocalypse or the zombies or whatever it is is coming on a particular date, um, then they can start, you know, com- you know 
accruing confirmatory evidence and ignoring disconfirmatory evidence until they're absolutely convinced that whatever is they think is true is is, is, is everybody's against us, but we know this is true. Um, and I'm probably oversimplifying that, and I'm not a psychologist, but it, it does exist. <laughs> I was contacted by um, a psychiatrist who um, said that maybe I should be looking into cases of folie plusieurs, where a whole family can can become taken up with some weird delusion. And I initially thought, yeah, great, this is it, because it was the whole family. But it doesn't really explain why neighbors and villagers all seem to believe in Jeff. Well, not all of them, but some of of the, the bus depot people in Peel, you know, some the postman who said he heard Jeff. It, can you expand the kind of folly or plusier delusion to, to include you know, 20 or 30 people who don't live in the same house. It doesn't, again, it doesn't quite add up. It kind of partly explains it, but not totally. Yeah, well, there's an interesting, I don't know how much you've looked into Bigfoot, um, but there is a woman named Janice Carter um, who believes that there is a family of Bigfoot that live around her house. Mm -hmm. And she had one that she called Fox, and she would tell people stories about how this Bigfoot would uh, chase down deer and hunt them and bring them back to her house. And they would, you know, so they would share the kills. Uh, She was very familiar with their family. She had names for all of them. People would come to the house and they wouldn't appear when other people were around, but there would be evidence, you know, that that maybe something was going on. So, um, you know, to the, as a skeptic, it's easy to say, okay, well, she's either delusional uh, or she's making it up, uh, yeah. or, or she's uh, what, whatever. You could make up a lot of things, or, or you know, without going to personally investigate. Um, but the reality is that um, you these people can sometimes be presenting untestable claims. <laughs> so if if the Bigfoot will only appear when we're not around, it's going to be really hard to. Prove it exists. Yes. You know what I mean. Yes. So, so if you if you give these people who are experiencing things like this um, uh, the benefit of the doubt, I, I guess, so to speak, um, it makes it really tough to investigate. And when investigators do show up, um, the the evidence is mixed in all in, in both of these scenarios. That the, there's things that it could be faked, and that's all we get. But there's things that are mysterious in this case, uh, like how do they get information from across the island? Yeah, and, and uh, I mean, so it, it's got elements that are still unsolved. I think that's wh- where you're oh, coming from. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. it, it might, I mean, you know, I, mean, I, I don't want to get into exactly what's going on, but you know, my personal take on it uh, after you know, as an adult, not when I was a kid, my personal take was it was probably some kind of monster, but. Uh, <laughs> As an adult, I have I'm suspicious that it was probably some members of the family creating the phenomena and then taking advantage of any confirmatory or mysterious thing that they could to make it the the work of Jeff. But I don't I don't know, you know. I, I think uh, Jeff resembles Mr. Irving very closely in personality, as Christopher was saying earlier about yeah. dovetailing with uh, his interests and his background. Yeah, that's true too. And it's like if the whole family was in on it, um, they didn't have TV. You know, <laughs> I don't think it was bless their hearts. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. It. it, it I don't it, think it was a malicious thing in any way. Right. right. It's a lot different from the Bell Witch case. You mentioned that earlier. In that the Bell Witch case. Uh, well, first of all, 
um, if we just talk about the story inside the book that was written, yeah, uh, um, it 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 was a mixture of benefit and harm that was coming from the creature, or the entity, or the witch, or however you want to call it. Yeah. Um, and in this case, this is mostly benevolent stuff. I mean, the you know, uh, there's not a lot of harm except for the noise and the frightening. Um, or at least that's my my take on it. I don't. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, initially he was very threatening, um, but after a few months, they kind of established a true. They tried to poison him initially, thinking that he was a flesh and blood material creature, and that didn't work. So they established this truce. Um, but again, you know, I have to say this is all coming from James Irving's very voluminous letters and diaries. Um, that's one thing that. Impressed me when I saw them. I mean, there are hundreds of pages of of, of these, and, and they're all quite mundane events. You, you might have thought that if you were faking, consciously faking contact with some kind of weird um, entity in in the the early thirties, you might have been talking about world affairs and the depression and the rise of Nazism, perhaps. But it's it's all very on a local level, very mundane about. Um, yeah, farming down the road and the price of bread and this sort of thing. Um, it doesn't seem to have been consciously faked by Irving anyway. Um, and he said he, uh, a couple of times he said he saw Jeff, um, and was touched by Jeff. So one has to wonder if, if it was just, um, the mother and the daughter faking it. What, what did he see that was, um, touching him, what did he, you know? What did he see running along the fence? Um, it's very tricky. Um, the other thing I don't know if we've mentioned, but I think there there is an aspect of sometimes when people have these mysterious, unexplained things happen to them, they're not able to provide proof. Like you were talking about the Bigfoot lady, um, they become subject to quite a lot of pressure to to deliver proof. And it's possible that this may have happened in the Jeff case, that there was something supernatural or paranormal going on. They weren't able to prove this, so they were faking, uh, for example, the photographs or the, the first samples. But that's not to say the entire thing was a hoax from start to finish. Uh, Precedent for that, yeah. The um, we we did a, an episode on the Columbus poltergeist, oh, and yeah. and then in that particular case, the um, the the little girl who was at the center of the case was caught faking something via photographs, and uh, her defense of that was, uh, or one I'm not sure it was her defense, maybe William Rolls, but uh, was that maybe she was faking to get the basically. To get the people what they wanted, so they get out of the house and stop talking to her, bad, yeah. badger, you yeah. know. So they're they're all here looking for evidence. She's, she's trying to produce the evidence to just get them out of the you know her life. Or even um, to get some support from outsiders as well. True, true. So let's let's okay. So <laughs> I don't you know we're not here to try to hammer out the actual answer to what was Jeff because as we said, I no. think it's a very complicated thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually extremely interested to see how your book turns out. I want to I want to read it. Yeah, um, when do you think that might be ready? Um, we're hoping it will be sometime next year, sometime in 2014. Um, but, you know, the curse of Jeff is always coming <laughs> with us, and who knows what may happen. Um, I've already spilt water all over my laptop, and um, 
thankfully I was able to retrieve the data, but I think Jeff's hand was at work there. Yeah. <laughs> so why did uh, the public lose interest in Jeff? Um, I think partly because his appearances just became less and less frequent. Um, and I think partly because there were more important things happening in the world that, um, excuse me, I'm just adjusting my headphones once again. The, um, he, he was at his heyday from 1931 to about 1937. He had a brief resurgence in 1942. There was an item in, um, one of the local Isle of Man papers. So he's been heard again. Um, but I think by then, you know, there was a world war, um, and people had moved on and it was kind of like, that's old news. Um, it didn't really come to a climax. It didn't really, it wasn't exposed as a hoax, but equally it wasn't proven to be, you know, my God, this is something genuinely unexplainable. It kind of petered out. He, um, as I say, as, as the daughter grew older, um, or you could argue, as Irving realised, that he wasn't going to get anywhere with this. He wasn't going to get the attention or the book that he wanted. Um, that that Jeff's voice was heard less and less. Um, he, he said he'd just be roaming around the island and he'd kind of come back now and again until he kind of disappeared. Um, interestingly, when Irving died, there was one or two odd things were heard in the house. It wasn't exactly Jeff's voice, but... Um, he had a long drawn out illness, so other members of the family came back. By that time, the daughter had, had moved out. Um, there was another daughter, an elder daughter who was in Liverpool. She'd come back to be with the family. She said she heard these whisperings and mutterings in, in the, uh, in the rafters. Uh, and she was a complete skeptic. She thought the whole thing was nonsense. Um, and when Irving actually died, there was, um, apparently a broom was moving of its own accord and, um, but, but maybe that's just uh, something that the mother and the daughter told us about or wanted us to believe. So what happened to the family uh, when the story started dying out? Did they leave the house? What happened to them? Um, they, they moved out after Irving died, which was, I think, in 1945 or 47. Um, by that time, the daughter was, was working in a factory, um, still on the Isle of Man. She, she tried to live the whole thing down. She found it a terrible embarrassment. People um, were kind of partly mocking her and partly scared of her. It was They called her the Dolby Spook, which was, it was the name for Jeff, but it was also a name attached to her. And I think it was partly thinking she was some kind of weird possessed girl and partly that she was just a hoaxer. Um, but she, she eventually moved to England, changed her name, and she refused to give interviews. Uh, she said, I don't want to talk about it. It was an awful period of my life. Um, but there was one very persistent interviewer for Fate magazine who, who managed to track her down and find her address. And he was ever so persistent and, and just sort of doorstepped her. And she said, OK, I will talk to you. Uh, and what she said was it had all been true. There had been this little animal that said it was a mongoose. Um, but I wish it had never happened because... He ruined my life and I could never get married because people thought I was a freak. Um, so it's quite poignant. Um, I kind of feel sorry for her because whatever it was, whether it was a joke that got out of hand or whether she was subject to some weird paranormal, you know, 
it, it didn't do her any good. Is is the uh, the point? Or any of them? No, no. That's a that's sad. <laughs> well, so Jeff is more than just a an interesting story, though. It's more than just a, a, a strange phenomena. The whole story also has an interesting tie to British legal history with the BBC. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Now, this was a kind of sidebar, but it got an awful lot of um, press coverage, and it was quite amusing as well. Now, uh, let me see if I can get this right. The The co-author of um, The Haunting of Cashman's Gap was, was R.S. Lambert, who was the editor of The Listener. Um, so he was connected with, with the BBC. Um, but there was some kind of internal feuding um, within the, the board of governors of the BBC, and another chap called Levita, Lord Levita, was was somehow at odds with with um, Lambert, and he made kind of off the cuff remark at I think a dinner, saying this man's off his chump. You know, he believes in all sorts of uh, superstitious, nonsensical things like the evil eye. And Lambert was kind of a friend of Price's and would you know accompany him with psychic investigations and so forth. So his enemy Levita said, this man's off his chump. He believes in the evil eye, and he's even gone to the Isle of Man to um, to look out for a talking mongoose, and he's not fit to be on the board of governors. Um, Lambert then sued him for libel, um, and this was a big, big case. There are even questions asked in um, the Houses of Parliament, which Jeff probably loved. I imagine he was very pleased to have uh, had his name mentioned in, in the Mother of Parliaments. Um, <laughs> That's funny. And it turned out in, uh, in, oh, I've forgotten his name. Uh, it turned out in the favor of the plaintiff, Lambert. right? Yeah. Yeah. He won quite a, quite a few thousand quid. Um, yes. Yeah, it looked like a very big settlement. <laughs> yeah. If only, um, poor old Irving could have got some yeah. of that. Yeah. Uh, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I want to tell you that this is fantastic. I think this is going to give our listeners a, a, a really great overview we're going to oh, yeah. link back to the Fortean Times article. And when your book comes out, let us know. I will. And, and we'll also uh, promote it on the show. So, have you been, you've been to the Isle of Man? You said you had. So, yeah. Uh, what's the accent like there? Does it have its own distinctive um, accent? It does. It's a bit weird. It's kind of mixed with Liverpool, but then it sounds also a bit Irish. Um, and this is a question that I haven't been able to answer is what accent did Jeff speak with? Um, because a lot of people ask this. Um, he certainly spoke some Manx words and Manx slang, yeah. but that's not to say, you know, he might have just been doing that in the same way as he spoke a bit of Yiddish and a bit of German and Dutch. Um, yeah, it's a weird accent. It's, it's, um, there's also a lot of immigration from the mainland. So it's, mm. I, you, yeah, you get people from Liverpool going over there, as the Irvings did. You get people from um, Lancashire, um, it sounds kind of a bit Irish, the, 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 old, the old Manx accent that I've heard. Yeah. yeah, Manx itself as a language is a dead language and died out with the last speaker in, I think, 1968 or something. Sadly, yes, yes. Wow. Um, I want to wind up, I guess. Uh, we're running a little over on time. but uh, so We don't, but we, we have to. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is really good. So yeah. we'd like to ask all of our uh, guests... Uh, this question what's your favorite monster ah well um 
when I was young, I was quite fond of the Loch Ness monster. Um, but I, I, I would have to say Jeff. I've yeah, well, out of loyalty, but um, <laughs> yeah, I would have to say Jeff because I feel there's more, there's more intrigue and mystery, and and the Loch Ness monster, to my knowledge, never talked. True. Well, yeah, yeah maybe not. <laughs> and wasn't I a do, poltergeist. So r- true, true. But you just reminded me. I, I think we've I, overlooked something really interesting that I maybe we just need to throw this in here too. How did you find out about Jeff? I've been trying to remember this, and I think when Karen mentioned the Osborne books, it was either that in the 70s, those Osborne children's mm-hmm. books for Unexplained or Mysteries, where, as I remember, they had a sort of terrific little cartoon version of, of um, the human hands and the, the sort of fierce little face. Or it may have been uh, a part work in the 80s, The Unexplained, which was a little magazine that came out every week and you could bind it together like man, myth and magic. And they had quite a good um, overview of Jeff. But it, it was always, like you say, Blake, it was always something in the background in your sort of teenage years. You'd read about it in these kind of compendiums of... I used to read, you know, Peter Underwood, Peter Haining, Mysteries of Britain, Ghost Stories of Britain, and Jeff would always be there as this unexplained mystery of the Isle of Man, and yeah. And All now right. he's got a Facebook page. He does. Now he's got a <laughs> page, yeah, which would be very pleased. Let's go and like it. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Well, Fantastic well, story. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Christopher. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Karen and Blake. I've enjoyed it. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. You heard Dr. Karen Stolzno and I, Blake Smith, interview researcher Christopher Joseph about the 1930s creature known as Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Monster Talk is brought to you with the support of Skeptic Magazine. The ideas expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect those of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Please come back and join Monster Talk in July for new episodes. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. My name is Jack.